invite you to remain standing as we recite the words of the Shema. These are words that Jesus would have said himself every morning when he woke, every evening before he went to sleep, at any time the scripture was about to be heard. Um, These are the words that he used to answer the question, what is the greatest commandment? They come from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. I'll say the first part in Hebrew if you'll repeat after me, and then we'll say the English part together. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahat. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. You can have a seat because the scripture passage is rather long today. Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the library that we love from the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. Cornelius was a Roman centurion living in Caesarea. He was an outsider, but he was a devout, God-fearing man. He generously gave to the poor, and he practiced constant prayer. About three o'clock one afternoon, he had a vision of a messenger of God saying to him, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and seen your kindness to the poor. Send men south to Joppa to the house of a tanner named Simon. Ask to speak to a guest of his named Peter. You'll find this house near the waterfront. After the messenger departed, Cornelius immediately called two of his slaves and a devout soldier, and he told them the whole story and sent them to Joppa. Just as these men were nearing Joppa about noon the next day, Peter went up on the flat rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house. He planned to pray, but he soon grew hungry. While his lunch was being prepared, Peter had a vision of his own, a vision that linked his present hunger with what was about to happen. A rift opened in the sky, and a huge sheet, suspended by its four corners, descended toward the ground. The sheet was filled with four-footed animals, creatures that crawl, and birds. And then he heard the Lord saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, No way, Lord. These animals are forbidden in the dietary laws of the Hebrew Scriptures. I would have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him, What God calls clean, you must not call profane. Peter saw this vision three times, and then he awoke very unsettled. While he was still confused, Peter heard the voices of Cornelius' servants asking for him at the front gate. The Spirit said to Peter, Look, three men are searching for you. Now arise and go with them, for I have sent them. Peter and his friends eventually went with the servants to the home of Cornelius in Caesarea. And after Cornelius greeted Peter and welcomed him into his home, Peter addressed the entire household. You know, we Jews considered a breach of divine law to associate with outsiders. But God has shown me something new in recent days. I should no longer consider any human unclean or beneath me. Now please tell me why you have sent for me. Cornelius shared the story of the heavenly messenger that instructed him to send to Joppa for Peter. And hearing this, Peter exploded with good news. It is clear to me now that God plays no favorites, that God accepts every person, whatever his or her background, that God welcomes all who revere the Lord and do right. Acts 10 closes with Peter concluding that the outsiders have received the same spirit of God that he received and asks his fellow Jews, is there any reason not to baptize these people as our fellow disciples? The story of God told for the people of God 
Thanks be to God. Last week, I had the privilege of seeing the movie Toy Story 4 with my family, as well as my sister's family, six kids in all. And a lot has changed since my girlfriend and I watched the first installment of Toy Story in 1995, 24 years ago. For starters, my girlfriend became my wife. In 1995, we weren't even married yet. For Toy Story 1 in 1995, we had no kids and no nieces or nephews. For Toy Story 4, 24 years later, we have three kids and 10 nieces and nephews. Some of you may remember that in 1995, most movie theaters didn't have stadium seating. There was a good chance that the head of the person in front of you was going to block part of the screen, but those days are gone. Last week, not only did the theater have stadium seating, but my wife and I sat in reserved, automated recliners. We even got to sit on the opposite side of the theater from the kids. It was amazing. (laughs) A lot has changed in the last 24 years, and yet not everything has changed. Some things have stayed the same. Snacks are still woefully overpriced at the movie theater, just like they were 24 years ago, and there are still 20 minutes of previews before the movie. And with all due respect to Toy Story 4, the storylines and themes of the movie are very similar to the storylines and themes of the original Toy Story. There's really nothing much new under the sun. Woody and Buzz are still up to their same old tricks. To remind us all of that fact, the artists and animators of Pixar who create the Toy Story movies place little hints or homages within each movie to connect them all. For example, at some point in every Toy Story movie, the Pizza Planet truck, an old Toyota pickup used for pizza delivery, will make an appearance. Sometimes the appearance of the Pizza Planet truck is obvious and easy to spot. Other times, it's hidden, and only those who are purposefully looking can find it. They call these little hints or connecting details, like the Pizza Planet truck, Easter eggs, because sometimes they're easy to find and sometimes they're well hidden. Another Easter egg that's not only in every Toy Story movie, but in every Pixar movie, is A113. A113 was the number of the animation classroom at the California Institute of the Arts, where many of the founders of Pixar learned to be animators and artists. Their shared formational experiences and attachment to that classroom have led the people of Pixar to place an A113 Easter egg in each of their 66 animated projects thus far. And in case you're wondering, the answer is no. No one in my family was able to spot the Pizza Planet truck or A113 in our viewing of Toy Story 4 last week, but the internet has assured me that they were there. Easter eggs, hints from the past that help inform the present, subtle nods to continuity, carefully placed within the story, communicating to those who are paying close attention that although it's been 24 years from the first movie to this one, there are connections to be made. Now, while the writers of the biblical stories would certainly not call them Easter eggs, they most certainly utilize storytelling techniques like hints and details that nod to continuity, directional arrows that pointed to the past in order to inform the present. The Hebrew word for such a hint is remez. 
and the library of the Bible is full of them. Unlike the animated eggs of the Pixar films, however, remez are not meant to be seen by our eyes. They are meant to be heard. Remez are found in words and sounds and sentence structures that we hear and remember where we've heard them before. Remez connects stories that are often separated by decades or even centuries. A remez provides deeper meaning in a story by alluding to another story or source. For example, when John begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning, he is utilizing a remez. John wants to connect stories of his gospel with the creation poems of Genesis that also start with the words, in the beginning. John wanted his audience to hear the words, in the beginning, and bring everything they associated with the creation poems rushing to the front of their minds. Only John has Mary Magdalene mistake the resurrected Jesus for a gardener, which is another remez, an Easter egg on the actual day of Easter, a directional arrow that points back to the Garden of Eden. John wanted the Garden of Eden to provide a deeper meaning to the stories of his gospel. For the longest time, I thought that the story we heard this morning about Cornelius and Peter was a story about Gentiles, which is a word that simply means all the non-Jewish folks, getting invited into the family of Jesus. Don't get me wrong, I have always loved this story. This story has been labeled Gentile Pentecost, implying that it was the moment in history when all those outside the tribe of Israel were invited into the family. As a Gentile who is thrilled to be in the family, the story has been one with which I have connected since the first time I heard it. I will admit to you that part of the reason that I love this story so much is that I'm a lover of cheeseburgers and shellfish. Historically, the story of Peter and Cornelius has also been used to justify the easing of dietary restrictions found in the Torah. Simply put, the thinking goes that since the voice of God told Peter to kill and eat everything on the sheet, we can now eat all those things previously that Scripture said not to eat. Can you see why I might love this story? Not only does someone like me, who is outside the tribe, get in, we are also given fewer rules to follow, at least around food. We can now have a bacon cheeseburger, which makes this a great, great story. Yet, I have picked up a few details since I first heard this story, details that make me wonder if Gentiles and bacon being allowed is really what Luke, the author of Acts, wanted to communicate. For starters, Luke's own story of Acts 2 tells us that on the actual day of Pentecost, the gathered crowd that receives an awakening of the Spirit of God included not only Jews from all over the known world, but also non-Jewish converts, Cretans, and Arabs. That's people from outside the tribe getting in. Those people are Gentiles. If we come a little further into Acts chapter 8, Philip baptizes a sorcerer and an Ethiopian eunuch into the tribe. Non-Jewish converts, Cretans, Arabs, a sorcerer, and an Ethiopian eunuch have all already been admitted to the tribe by the time we get to Acts 10. Does that mean that the Gentile Pentecost of Acts 10 is simply a story that repeats what's already happened? 
If the main point of the story of Peter and Cornelius is that Gentiles, non-Jews, get invited into the family of faith, it would seem that point has already been made a number of times. And if this story is simply about easing the dietary restrictions that forbid the eating of certain animals, then why even include Cornelius? Why not just stop with Peter's visions and then cut to a nice barbecue or shrimp boil? These kinds of questions make me want to look for Ramez, for directional arrows to see if Luke has left any hints about what really might be going on here. And the good news is that just like a Pixar movie, Luke filled his story with Easter eggs. Let's start with the village of Joppa. Joppa is the village by the sea where Peter's journey to Cornelius begins. You may know that there's another biblical story of a journey that finds its beginnings in Joppa, the story of Jonah. We probably all remember the story of Jonah. It's well known for the incredible plot twist of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish only to be spat up three days later on the shores of Nineveh. But before Jonah is swallowed by a great fish, when the story begins, the Lord tells Jonah to travel to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, to tell the Assyrians to repent and turn toward God. Jonah thinks this is a terrible idea. He despises the Assyrians and knows that they are just as likely to kill him as they are to hear about what he has to say about his God. The Assyrians living in Nineveh are Jonah's mortal enemies. They killed and enslaved thousands of Jews. To Jonah, there is no one less deserving of God's mercy and love. So in protest, Jonah refuses his mission and runs away. And guess where he runs to catch a boat out of Dodge? Joppa, the village by the sea. Both journeys begin in Joppa. Jonah's invitation to go to Nineveh to tell the Assyrians about God, and Peter's invitation to go to Caesarea to tell Cornelius about God. That remez, that directional detail in and of itself is enough to make me want to see the entire story of Acts 10 through the lens of Jonah. But Luke, the writer of Acts, doesn't stop there. He drives the point home. Luke makes sure his audience will connect the story of Peter and Cornelius to the story of Jonah and the Assyrians. Here are just a few of the Easter eggs that Luke places within his story. In Jonah 3.2, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, Arise and go to Nineveh. In Acts 10.20, the word of the Lord comes to Peter and says, Arise and go with the men to Caesarea. Jonah is sent to Nineveh, a large, commercially important capital city that is full of Assyrians. Peter is sent to Caesarea, a large, commercially important capital city that is full of Romans. Both Jonah and Peter argue against their assignments and are only convinced after fantastic circumstances. In Jonah's case, the aforementioned fish, In Peter's case, three identical visions, followed by three men who retrieve him to Cornelius. Speaking of the number three, Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days. Peter, the disciple who denied Jesus 
three times, has three visions, and is retrieved by three men in response to Cornelius' vision, which took place at three o'clock. And if we're not yet convinced, here's where things start to get really interesting. We've already acknowledged that God sent Jonah to his mortal enemies, the Assyrians. And as much as we may incorrectly reduce the story of Jonah to the detail about the fish, the central question of the story of Jonah is not, do you believe that a man can live in the fish for three days? The central question asked of Jonah and all of us as hearers of this story is, will you join God in inviting your enemy into the family of faith? In our rush to classify the story of Acts 10 as Gentile Pentecost and recognize Cornelius as simply a God-fearing Gentile like the rest of us, we sometimes forget exactly what Cornelius was to Peter, an enemy. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, a leader and an officer in the Roman army. Cornelius wasn't just an outsider, he was the enemy. Rome oppressed the Jews, killing them for living their lives before God instead of Caesar. Just like the Assyrians of Nineveh, Rome had all the power, military, political, financial, and otherwise. Peter had grown up with a worldview that understood Rome as the enemy. Peter, as well as the rest of Jesus' disciples, thought the Messiah would come to overthrow Rome with might and force, and instead they watched as Roman soldiers, like Cornelius, tortured their Messiah and crucified him. Both Jonah and Peter are asked if they will partner with God who's sending them to their enemies. If they will join God in inviting those enemies into the family of faith. God asks a protesting Jonah, should I not be concerned about Nineveh? God tells a protesting Peter, what God has made clean you must not call profane. Both Jonah and Peter are asked, who really gets to decide who your enemies are? Who really gets to be judged? You know, when I began to compare these two journeys that begin in Joppa and move toward enemies, I learned something else about Joppa. Joppa makes its first appearance in the biblical narrative as Jacob is dividing up the promised land amongst the tribes of his 12 sons. In chapters 18 and 19 of Joshua, we hear that the area containing Joppa goes to the tribe of Dan. Dan was the son of Jacob and Bilhah, and his name means judge. In Genesis 49, when Jacob gathers his family around his deathbed, he declares that Dan will handle matters of justice for the people of Israel. Dan the judge, the keeper of Joppa. It's from Joppa, the land of Dan the judge, that both these journeys begin. Jonah's journey and judgment toward his enemies and Peter's journey and judgment toward his enemies, both united by Joppa and both united by an unwavering divine invitation to the despised. In the end, both Jonah's enemies and Peter's enemies received that invitation. 
The Assyrians in Nineveh, every one of them, including the king and even the animals, repent and turn toward God. The entire household of the Roman soldier Cornelius professes Jesus as the Christ, and all are baptized. There are so many hints and directional arrows connecting the story of Peter and Cornelius to the story of Jonah and the Assyrians that it's hard to tell what makes them distinct, to see what makes them different. Some things never change. But the difference is there. If we pull back the remez that unite these two stories, there is one glaring difference between them. The response. Jonah never got it. Peter did. If the question to both Jonah and Peter is, will you move beyond your religious boundaries to join God in inviting your enemy inside, Jonah's answer is no. To be specific, Jonah's answer is more like, I'll do it because you're making me do it, but I don't want to do it and I don't approve. Yes, Jonah does ultimately walk through the streets of Nineveh telling the Assyrians to repent and turn toward God, but he doesn't do it willingly. The way the original Hebrew words read in the story of Jonah, it's as if every part of creation aligns with God's will for the Assyrians except for Jonah. When Jonah boards a ship to escape his instructions to go to Nineveh, the Hebrew reads as if the seas cause themselves to rage and the ship that he's on tears itself apart. Even the pagan sailors participate throwing Jonah overboard where he is swallowed by a fish and forced to go to Nineveh. And once he's spit up on the shores of Nineveh, convinced that he has to do what he was sent there to do, he finishes his task by pouting. We often miss this detail, but after telling the Assyrians to repent, Jonah goes outside the city builds a sukkah, which is a booth or temporary dwelling, and asks God to kill him. A sukkah is what gets built during the festival of Sukkot. It's the festival that Zechariah 14 indicates will be celebrated for all eternity by all the nations that turn toward God, not just the Jews. So when Jonah sees the Assyrians turn toward God, then builds a sukkah and asks God to kill him, that is a serious temper tantrum. He would rather die than watch his enemies come into the family. And that's how his story ends, with an epic pout. Jonah never gets it. But that's the difference. Something has changed. Peter got it. To be sure, it's not instantaneous. Our boy Peter's a bit of a slow starter. He doesn't get there immediately. It takes a lot of help, and it takes some time. Peter did not instantly understand that God was calling him to move beyond his religious restrictions to people scripturally deemed unworthy. If anything, the stories of Peter that we have in the library of the Bible show that he moved toward this understanding gradually and through a series of failures and confusing experiences. Theologian Robert Wall says it this way, the process of getting on the same page with God is frequently confusing, profoundly dependent upon others, and often takes considerable time. I would submit to you that Peter had a lifetime of experiences leading him toward this story, 
where he finally moves beyond Jonah. Peter didn't have a momentary conversion where he got it in an instant. Peter had a lifetime of conversions, awakenings, revelations, adoptions into the family, ongoing immigration into the kingdom of God. Peter doesn't have a singular moment of brilliance. Peter witnessed firsthand the arrest, torture, and crucifixion of Jesus the Christ at the hands of the Roman Empire. And now, after a series of three dreams, the arrival of three visitors from Caesarea, and the urging of the Holy Spirit, Peter begins a journey toward his enemies from Joppa, the same place where Jonah's journey began centuries before. Peter had a treasure trove of Easter eggs, of hints and directional arrows upon which he eventually stood, including the story of Jonah himself. So when Peter's enemies turn toward God and receive the invitation into the family of death, Peter doesn't pout and call for the end of the world. He rejoices. He looks at his fellow Jews, those who considered Romans their mortal enemies, and asks, is there any reason not to baptize these people as our fellow disciples? Peter stands on the wisdom of Jonah and asks a question that sounds strikingly similar to God's question at the end of Jonah's story. Should I not be concerned with them? So much of Peter's story and Jonah's story is the same. There's amazing continuity between these stories that were separated by centuries. Some things never change. Like a God who asks us if we can imagine beyond our religion and include beyond our boundaries. And like the human response that protests and pout and says, no, I can't. That's a bridge too far. But some things do change. Peter got it. Peter was able to cross boundaries of ethnicity and power and politics and economics and religion and oppression and very real pain to say to Cornelius, not just, you've got a friend in me, but we are family. And Peter didn't do that because he was better than Jonah. It's not that he was smarter or more spiritual. Peter wasn't able to get it in spite of Jonah. Peter was able to get it because of Jonah. Peter stood on the shoulders of Jonah to see farther than Peter could see. Peter had all the Easter eggs of Jonah's story and his story, hints to recognize, directional arrows pointing him forward. Which makes me wonder, from atop my perch on the shoulders of both Jonah and Peter, what can I see? What are all these Easter eggs telling me? Where do all these remez, these directional arrows, point me? I think the voices of Jonah and Peter resonating with the spirit and the story of God, and maybe a little help from Buzz Lightyear, might say, to my enemies and beyond.